0: our privilege this evening to continue our series in the book of Ephesians, and tonight I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, I believe it's page 978 in your pew Bibles. If you want to grab a Bible, if you didn't bring your own, you don't have your own, you're welcome to use the one in front of you, and I encourage you to follow along as I read. This is the Word of God, it is the truth, and it is a precious gift. May we receive it. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that you would apply its truths to our hearts this evening. May your spirit reign in every heart. May your son call us to yourself. And may we rejoice in the truth of your word and the difference that Jesus makes. We pray this in his name. Amen. What if Jesus is real? What if he is a real and risen and loving and judging Lord? What difference would he make? That's the question that Rosario Butterfield began to ask in her life. Rosario was in her late 30s, and she was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. In fact, she was one of the few tenured women at a research university. She was in the women's studies department. She was a rising administrator, a community activist. She was advancing radical leftist ideas, in her mind, striving to make the world a better place. She had studied Freud and Marx and Darwin, and her primary field was postmodernism. And within that, her specialty was a postmodern form of gay and lesbian studies which she enjoyed studying very much, and gave lectures on this topic over and over again. In fact, she was a lesbian herself. She owned two homes with her partner. She had given the keynote address at a gay pride march. And she thought that Christianity was problematic, that it was damaging. But our gracious God intervened in her life and brought a Presbyterian pastor into her life in an unexpected way. And he began to listen to her, and to answer her questions. And she began to read the Word of God. And she began to ask that question. What if Jesus is real? What if Jesus is a real, and risen, and loving, and judging Lord? What difference would he make in my life? And that question is one way to frame the truths that we read about here in Ephesians 4 as Paul writes in this passage. See, Paul is following his typical pattern here in the book of Ephesians. You see it throughout the New Testament in Paul's writings where he'll begin with a series on doctrine, what we are to believe. And then he'll move towards duty or how we are to behave. He talks about the truth. And then he talks about how that truth is to transform our lives. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, because Jesus is real, because he is a risen and loving and judging Lord, this is how you ought to live. Because these things are true, it makes all the difference in your life. And this evening, we want to look at that from three different angles here in Ephesians 4. First of all, we want to see that Jesus makes a difference in the way that we think and live. We see that in verses 17 through 19, the beginning of our passage here. Jesus makes a difference in the way that we think and live. Now, before we dive into that, I just want to point out two things. Notice two things as we begin. First of all, notice the authority behind this message. See, Paul begins by saying, now this I say and testify in the Lord. Paul, as an apostle, as one who had seen the risen Christ with his own eyes. So he knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus Christ was indeed a risen Lord. And Christ had called Paul to be his messenger. And here, Paul is claiming the authority of Christ. He wants to emphasize what he's about to say. And so he reminds us that he is speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Jesus Christ, the master of the universe. Jesus Christ, the one who has the right to reign over all that he has made. And the Bible says that he made you. And so he has the right to reign in your life. Jesus Christ, the one who taught with authority. In fact, that's what amazed the people so often when they heard Jesus speak when he walked on this planet. They would listen to him and they they would respond by saying, Who is this that he teaches with such authority? We've never heard anyone talk or teach like this before. And it's because Jesus had authority and Jesus has authority today. The question is, will you recognize that authority? Will you honor authority? that authority? Will you submit to that authority? Will you listen to what God the Lord will say to you tonight here? You see, what this means is that when we gather together this evening, when, when you came tonight, you didn't come to hear me speak. You didn't come to just sing a few songs together. And you didn't just come to socialize with your friends after the service. No, we gather together To hear the word of the Lord and to worship the Lord of the word. And when we gather together tonight, something supernatural takes place. You've heard me say this before and I cannot emphasize this enough. But when you gather together to worship the Lord tonight, something unique happens. Something supernatural happens as we hear the word of the Lord proclaimed. The authority of God himself comes and meets with us through his word, and he speaks to us today through his word. Now some of you here tonight agree with that 100%, and that's why you are here. You are eager to hear your God speak to you through his word. But some of you are here tonight, and you're not so sure about that. You know, you might not believe that the Bible is indeed the Word of God. And you might not think that it holds any authority over your lives. And if that's you tonight, if you're wrestling with that, if you're struggling with that, I would just encourage you for tonight to consider the possibility that this might indeed be the very Word of God. That it might indeed hold authority over your lives. And I would also encourage you to read it and study it on your own and see if it does not prove true. Paul is speaking to us with the authority of the Lord himself. Secondly, also notice who Paul is writing to. And we began the series several weeks ago, but you might remember at the beginning, chapter 1, the first couple of verses, Paul tells us that he's writing to the church in Ephesus, the saints who are in Ephesus These were, in fact, Gentiles themselves. But what does Paul say here in verse 17? He's speaking to Gentiles, and he tells them to no longer walk as Gentiles do. So what does that mean? What is he talking about? And I think there's two things going on here. One's the main one, and that is this. A lot of times when the Bible uses the term Gentiles, it's referring to people who do not yet know Jesus Christ to people who are not living for Christ, who are not following Christ. In a word, it's it's talking about people who are not yet Christians. But I think Paul also is reminding the church at Ephesus that their identity is not in their nationality. It's not a matter of where they were born or what family they were born into because God has made a complete difference in their lives through Jesus Christ. And so now they are in Christ. Earlier, we were taught that these Gentiles— who had been enemies of Christ, were now members of the household of God. And so Paul tells them, don't live as those who are not members of the household of God because that's not who you are anymore. And then he describes for us the difference that Jesus makes in the way that we think, and the way that we live. And he does this by showing us the layers of corruption apart from Christ. So we can see the difference that Jesus makes and the way we think, and the way we live, by looking at a life without Christ. And that's the picture Paul gives us in verses 17 through 19. And essentially, he summarizes it like this. It's a hardness of heart that leads, first of all, to darkness of mind, or what the Bible would call spiritual blindness, where people cannot see the glory of Christ. They cannot see the beauty of Christ. They cannot see the truth of Christ. And then this darkness of mind leads to deadness of soul under the judgment of God and finally to recklessness of life. Having lost all sensitivity, people lose all self-control. We see this in our world today. We see this in verse 19. Paul wrote, they've become callous." They've given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. In a sense, he's saying they lose their sense of right and wrong, so they pursue whatever feels good, and they end up doing all kinds of wrong. That certainly is what described Rosario Butterfield's life, as she was pursuing all kinds of sin. And this is the true nature of the world apart from Christ. It's what we are by nature. And if our gracious God did not intervene, and if he does not intervene, that is where the human race would remain. It's where we would remain condemned to futility. Now, perhaps you're here tonight, and maybe you don't identify with that assessment of your life that Paul gives. You know, you might be living a life of sin, and you might be loving it. You might not think that it's futile, you might think that it's fulfilling, and you might not realize yet the true futility of your sin, and you might not recognize that God is being patient with you. He is withholding his wrath that you might recognize your rebellion, and you might repent, you might turn to him. Or maybe you're here tonight, and you don't see that what Paul says is true of you. You don't agree with his assessment of you because you see yourself as a good person, an upright, moral person. You're striving to do what is right. Maybe you even consider that you are intellectually enlightened, much sharper thinker than any Christian you know, looking to reason, looking to science to guide your life. And you may claim the intellectual high road, but the Bible says, both here and also in Romans chapter 1, that the reality is your heart is set against God. And so your understanding is darkened and you suppress the truth about God. You refuse to acknowledge Him. And you are not willing to submit to Him. You reject what the Bible says you know to be true. Or maybe you're here tonight as a follower of Christ, as one who loves Jesus. And as you hear that call to no longer live as those who don't know Christ, Maybe you're weighed down with a sense of guilt as you think about your life and you're filled with shame at the habits that have a hold on on you and you can't seem to break free from and you know that they're not the kind of habits that should characterize those who know and love Jesus Christ and you see the mess that you've made of your life and the brokenness that has resulted because of your sin wherever you are tonight as you consider where you personally are in relation to the difference that Jesus makes in the way that we think and live remember this key point Paul is writing to believers he is writing to followers of Christ so why would he give this warning why would he need to tell followers of Christ don't live as if you're not a follower of Christ don't live As if you don't believe in Jesus. Don't live like people who are not striving to follow Jesus. Well, the reason that Paul gives this instruction is because we, as believers, as followers of Christ, we face these temptations to sin every day, multiple times a day. We face the struggle to live as if we don't know Christ, as if Jesus is not real, as if he has not risen. As if he is not a loving and judging Lord. We face this in the way that we respond to our spouse. And in the way that we treat our children. Children face this in the way that they will decide whether or not to honor their parents. The way we live in our workplace. The way we live in our neighborhoods. The way we live in our families. We face these struggles, these temptations. We face them in the way that we will use the internet. You know, the, the sinful allures of the internet can be so great and they lead so many people both Christians and non-Christians into destructive addictive behavior whether it's gambling or pornography or maybe even something more accepted as just a waste of our time not using our time wisely and it might seem innocent it might seem as if I'm not hurting anyone nobody knows about it Nobody needs to know about it. I can stop any time. I'll just indulge this one time and then I'll put it behind me and go on and, and leave it behind. But the reality is when we indulge in sin, it hardens our hearts. It darkens our minds to the evil of what we are doing. And it ultimately makes us less and less sensitive to and less fulfilled by the profound satisfaction. That only God can truly provide. Sin dulls our appetites for Christ, and it is very damaging and very deadly. You no know, fruit tastes a lot better when you're not eating chocolate every day. So I've heard. When we want the embrace of the world to satisfy us, when we want the embrace of the world to satisfy us, we inevitably discover that we need, to squeeze us, we need it to squeeze us tighter and tighter and tighter until it drives all tenderness and feeling out of our hearts. It's this vicious cycle. We want more and more and more. We're satisfied less and less and less. And it drives us away from the satisfaction in Christ. Paul says we are alienated from the life of God. Pastor Brian Chapel shares an illustration to help us understand this. He talks about uh, the phenomenon that happens when you visit people in the hospital who are on their deathbed, and they, they realize that they're about to die, and nothing can really be done to bring them back to health. So they're in their last stages of life. And he has visited numerous people in the hospital that are facing that situation. And he says what happens is these dying loved ones urge you, they urge their loved ones to squeeze their hand. They long for this sensation of human touch as their experience in this world is coming to an end. And as their heart begins to fail, and as those senses, those sensations that reach the brain begin to dull, that desire for human touch becomes all the more intense. The need becomes all the more pressing. And he shares a specific example of this man who was dying because of a tear in his failing heart. And how his, fam- his family had gathered together around him in the hospital to visit with him. And he asked them to squeeze his hand. And so they grabbed his hand and, and they were holding his hand. And he cried out, Harder! So they squeezed Harder! And he's losing his sense of touch harder and they squeeze harder until finally he could no longer feel it and he just cries out, hold me. And his family gathered around and they lifted it up, him up and they, they held him in their arms not realizing that their embrace would complete the tear in his heart. And he would die moments later. See tonight, whether you're here in love with your sin or denying your sin or struggling with your sin paul wants this shocking image about the reality of sin to grab your attention to help you realize that seeking pleasure outside the path of god promises to satisfy but ultimately it only destroys the heart it darkens the mind it deadens the senses. It alienates you from the true God and it ends in futility. It ends in death. And Paul says, God's children must not fall into that pattern. We must not live as those who do not know Jesus. Jesus makes a difference in the way that we think and in the way that we live. You must not live like that. Why? Because you know the truth. You know that Jesus is real, that he is risen, that he is loving, that he is a judging Lord. And he made you to love him, to delight in him, to worship him, to trust him. You have seen the beauty that is in Jesus Christ and you cannot turn away from it. Jesus makes a difference in the way we think and in the way we live. But we move on here to verses 19 through 20. Or verses 20 through 21. And we see that Jesus makes a difference when we know him. Jesus makes a difference when we know him. Verse 20 says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Seems a strange thing to say. You learned Christ. But what that verb means there, it's referring, it could be, it could be translated... That's not the way you came to know Christ. And it's referring to a one time act. It's a clear reference to the act of salvation or conversion. It's not the way you came to know Christ. It's not the way you were transformed when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. You see, being a Christian is not just learning about Jesus. It's not just gaining knowledge about who Jesus is. It's not just learning a bunch of facts so that you can pass a theological test. It's getting to know the living God himself. We can have a real, living, dynamic relationship with the one who created all things and holds all things together and who loves us eternally. And when you come to know this Jesus, the real, the risen the living, the loving, the judging Lord, you are never the same. You cannot be the same. You cannot live as if he's not there. You cannot ignore him. You cannot help but be transformed by him because Jesus is so utterly unique because he is God in the flesh. Jesus makes such a difference because he is so different himself. He is powerful. He is compelling we didn't have our mission report this morning, so I'll give you a little mission report this evening. And some of you might be familiar with this story. It comes from Matt Irvin. Matt is one of the missionaries that we support in London. And in a recent prayer letter that he sent out, he told this story. He shared this story. And in fact, in the, the paper in the bulletin today... There's a prayer request for this young family that Matt and, and Jen are, are getting to know. And I, I believe it's the young couple that recently had an aunt uh, pass away. And, and so they're grieving. He's asked for prayer for that. But the man, the husband, the father, has been joining Matt for a Bible study. And he does not know Christ. He does not love Jesus. He does not yet realize that Jesus is real and risen. In fact, I think he belongs to a Hindu religion. And yet he comes to this Bible study. And Matt tells a story about how at a recent Bible study, this man volunteered to read the Scripture that they were studying that night. It's from Luke chapter 7. And, it's, and he was reading verses 11 through 17. And, and, and the man was reading this passage. I'm going to read it for you and just share with you what happened at this Bible study. Luke seven eleven. 11. So, so this man who does not know Christ, Begins to read. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up. And the man stopped reading. And he said, Is this real? Did Jesus really do this? And Matt said to him, "Well, Well, what do you mean? And he said, did Jesus really raise people from the dead? And Matt said to him, well, well, yes, if the Bible is true and we believe that it is, then this is a historical fact. And the man was overwhelmed. He said, wow, I never knew that. That Jesus could raise people from the dead. See, knowing this Jesus changes Everything, knowing this Jesus who raised people from the dead, knowing this Jesus who himself was raised from the dead, changes you. Knowing this Christ is what enables people, what compels a pastor to write a book and call it Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's what enables the songwriter to write You can have all this world give me Jesus. It's what enables Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians. And last week, Dr. Rogers preached about Acts chapter 9. If you haven't heard that message, I encourage you to grab the CD and listen to it or go online and listen to it. It tells the story how Paul, who had been giving his life to wiping out Christians, putting them to death. But he had an encounter with the living Christ. And his life was transformed. And he came to know Christ and now he gives his life to making Christ known. Willing to risk imprisonment. Willing to risk beating. Willing to risk death. If only he could make Christ known. Jesus makes a difference when you know him. When you see him for who he is. In verse 21... Paul writes, assuming that you have heard about him. But that word about, that preposition, is not actually in the original writing. And it's better translated, or you could say a literal translation would be, surely you heard him and were taught in him. So it's not just hearing about Jesus, although you do hear about Jesus, but it's that you hear him. You hear Jesus himself, the one who reigns over all, calls out personally to you. And this is what must happen in your life if any of what I am saying is to make any sense to you. You must hear the voice of Jesus calling you out of darkness into light, calling you out of death into life. Something supernatural must take place in your life. The Bible says, Jesus says in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Have you heard the voice of Jesus? Do you hear him tonight calling to you from his word? If not, my encouragement to you would be to read his word, to listen for the voice of Of Jesus through his word. To continue to come to church. To hear the word of God proclaimed. To ask the Lord to give you ears to hear his voice. Jesus makes a difference when we know him. When he calls us. Well finally we see a third angle here in the, in the final passage here. Verses 22 through 24. When Jesus calls you. When you hear him when you're taught the truth that is in him, the difference that Jesus makes is total transformation. It is a completely new you. We're we're what? Two weeks into the new year? And I don't don't know, I won't ask for a, a a raise of hands or anything like that. But I don't know if any of you have made New Year's resolutions and already broken them 13 days. But uh, you know, now's the time of year when, when, when people are thinking about, okay, a new year's begun. How can I improve my life? How can I make my life better? How can I make myself into a, a new, better person? And whether we want to admit it or not, I think for, um, I don't know what the exact age would be, probably anybody out of, out of, out of college, maybe 25 and above, I don't know. For, for most people, their resolutions center around losing weight and improving their image, you know, eating better, losing weight. So, so at this time of the year, if you are not currently a member of a gym, you're not really welcome there. I, I read this, I saw this post on Facebook recently, and, and this person who goes to the gym was just like, I hate this time of year. I can't wait till all these people leave. And somebody else was like, well, just wait till February, they'll all be gone. So apparently I would not be welcome there. You know, but that's what people are doing. The gyms are packed right now because people want to transform their image. They're motivated at the beginning of the year. How can I improve myself? But you know, Jesus doesn't just come and improve your life. And he doesn't try to make it happen. Jesus transforms your life. He makes you completely new and he never fails. You see, what he starts, he finishes. Pastor John MacArthur said it like this. He says, salvation is not improvement or perfection of what already was. It is total transformation. You become a new creation. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And see, remember, who is Paul writing to? He's writing to people who already know Jesus. Jesus. He's writing to believers. He's writing to people who are already following Christ. And so he's not exhorting us to do these things here in verses 22, 23, 24. But he's describing what happens, what has already happened to those who know Christ. When someone hears the gospel of salvation, believes the truth that is in Jesus, this is what happens. This is the reality of that experience. And Paul is emphasizing our union with Christ. This is a truth that he continuously emphasizes throughout his writings. Paul's reminding us that we are, when we are born, by nature, we are members of the family of Adam. The first Adam, created in the garden with Eve, was our representative head, our original father, and we fell in him. And because of that, we experience the consequences of this in our lifestyle and in our destiny. But when we trust in Christ... Our ties with Adam are broken and done away with forever. And we are gloriously adopted into a new family. So now we belong to Christ, the new Adam, our new representative head, the head of God's people. And Paul's saying, learn to live in the reality of that. This is what happened. Live in the reality of that. So when he says, put off the old self, He's referring to the old man. He's not referring to the earlier part of your life before you knew Christ, before knowing Christ, but he's referring to the old man, that life of condemnation, that life of slavery under the first Adam. He says, when you come to know Christ, that has been put off. That verb means to strip off. It's, It's like taking off some old, filthy clothes and getting rid of them. You know, last week, I was not feeling very well. Um, in fact, on Sunday, I was rather sick, and, and Amy was a, 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 an amazing trooper in our home, doing all the work, taking care of what, everything in the house, and all the, all the kids, and uh, I was sick all day Sunday, and, and Monday not feeling good, and, and she comes to me, and she says, you need to take all your clothes, anything you touched, and put it in the wash. And, and, and there was one moment where I kind of, I guess I had my hand on her shoulder, and and she goes, she shoves me away. She's like, no offense, but don't touch me. You know, she's the mom. She cannot get sick. She wants me to put off all those filthy, old, dirty, contaminated clothes. Some of these, you might be familiar with some rescue missions. They have, some of them have what's called a delousing room. So if somebody's, somebody comes and they've, they've maybe been struggling with homelessness, and they haven't had a chance to bathe or get clean in a long time, they'll take all their clothes and they'll actually burn them and clean them up and give them a new, a completely new set of clothes. That's that's an image of what's happening here. That's an image of what has happened to us. We put off the old man. Paul talks about this in Romans 6. Another great passage talking about our union with Christ. He says, we know the old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That man has been put off. And then Paul says, be renewed in your mind. And, and there he's talking about how we change the way we think about our sin. We no longer delight in our sin. We no longer deny our sin. We admit it. We change the way we think about Jesus. Because now we think clearly. We see clearly. We see the truth. We're no longer darkened in our understanding and so we turn from our sin. We admit our sin. We desire to turn from it and turn to Christ and trust in Him and love Him and follow Him and live for Him. The old man has been put off. We've been renewed in our mind and we put on the new self. Who is that new self? But our union with Jesus Christ. We are made new in Christ. See, when we trusted in Christ, our ties with the old Adam are broken. We've put off the old man. And in being united to the new Adam, to Jesus Christ, we also put on the new man. We've put on Christ. We've been raised with Jesus Christ. Our Christ has been put on us. So now, it's not just that my life has changed and become new. This newness means that I belong to a new way of living, a new age that has been inaugurated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, Christ has become the first new man by means of his resurrection from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. So this concept here, it's bigger than just a New Year's resolution. It's bigger than that we lived an old life, now live a new life. See, in our new life in Christ, the destiny for which Adam was created will now come to fulfillment. Let that sink in for a moment. Our new life in Christ, that destiny for which Adam was originally created, will now come to fulfillment. See, God created us to be with Him. He created us for His glory. Man has been created in the image of God, and that image has been marred and broken by the fall, we see this all around us. We see this in our own families. We see this in our nation. We see this in marriages, and relationships. We see this brokenness all around us. But in Christ, this image can be restored. He makes all things new. And so we can once again reflect His character and His glory in true righteousness and holiness. Not perfectly, but Increasingly. And headed to perfection. And while it will take a lifetime to work all this out in our thinking and living, it will indeed happen. And our lives can never be the same again. Because we are headed for eternal glory with Christ. And this is all possible because of the difference that Jesus makes. So as we close... I want just to encourage you with one next step that you could take. In light of the truth of what we've talked about tonight, and I trust that the Holy Spirit will apply this personally to your lives, but let me give you just one simple thing that you could do in response to the truth of these words. And that is this I would encourage you to talk to God about the difference that Jesus has made in your life. Talk to God about the difference Jesus has made in your life. And so if you're here tonight, and you know Jesus, you can rejoice. You can go before your great God, and you can praise and thank Him, for He has brought you out of death into life. He has brought you out of darkness into His marvelous light, and you know that you have been ransomed from the futile way of life handed down to you by your fathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. But with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or spot. And so you can rejoice and praise and thank your God and Father. And then you can bring your request to him. And say, Lord, make this true in my life. Live through me. You have been crucified with Christ. You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. And the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Is that true? Amen. You can bring that before God and ask him to work that out in your life. But if you've come here tonight and Jesus has not yet made that difference in your life, And perhaps you do not yet know Christ. I encourage you to talk to God about that as well. And you would come to Him and now you would have the opportunity to repent. To admit that you need Jesus to make that difference in your life. And let me just read for you the way Rosario Butterfield put this. Because Christ did transform her life completely. And I would encourage you The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. This book tells her story. I would encourage you to read it, but this is what she says. She says, That night I prayed and asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me too. I prayed that if Jesus was truly a real and risen God, that he would change my heart. And if he was real and if I was his, I prayed that he would give me the strength of mind to follow him and the character to become a godly woman. I prayed for the strength of character to repent for a sin that at that time didn't feel like sin at all. It felt like life, plain and simple. I prayed that if my life was actually his life, that he would take it back and make it what he wanted it to be. I asked him to take it all, my sexuality, my profession, my community, my tastes, my books, and my tomorrows. And Christ indeed took it all and transformed her life. And today... She is a Presbyterian pastor's wife and a mother of four children that they have adopted, living for the glory of the real and risen and living Savior. Do you know him? I am forever grateful for the difference that he has made in my life. And I hope and pray that you will know him as well. Let us pray. Our great God and King, we give you all praise and honor and glory for your Son, Jesus Christ, for what he has accomplished in our lives. We thank you that he was willing to put off, that he was willing to leave the glory of heaven, to come to earth, to live and die in our place, to put on our sin, to suffer for the sin that we committed so that we could be made new. Lord, may you make people new this evening and may you encourage and strengthen your children that they might delight in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.